Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Pastor Brian Wolfmuller's Has American Christianity Failed? Um, before we begin, I just want to make one quick housekeeping note. We've been looking into getting copies of the Enchiridion for everyone. That's the text that's, that you voted in that's been selected for the next stage. They're out of print, so uh, Concordia Publishing House offers print on demand. I forget exactly what the price listed there is, something like $28.99. What I think we're going to try to do as a church is uh, do a mass or group order. We should be able to maybe get 10% off. Who knows? With shipping and everything else, it'll probably still be around $30. But if that's something you're interested in, would you let me know after class, and I'll take down your name, uh, or if you're watching online, or catching this later, send me an email. I'll take down your name, and we'll try to get that order off. Seems like it might take anywhere from two to three weeks to print all of those. Then again, if we get more of them, maybe it'll be a higher priority. I don't know how these things work. So we'll see, but that'll be the plan for securing copies. If you go try to find one of the out-of-print copies, I'm worried that your pagination might be different. So that is the way we'll try to go, just to have a uniform um, way. There's another, the Enchiridion is also included in a collection of a couple other documents, but that price, I think it's over $60 for that book, and it's a big, thick, heavy book. So I would discourage you from purchasing that for the sake of this class. Again, just keeping pagination and everything uniform as we go through. So again, just after class, uh, let me know. Um, drop me an email, whatever's easiest for you. We will still be spending some weeks uh, in this class because, as Wolfmuller has introduced us to the problem of eschatology or the end things in American Christianity, we've got much to discuss and talk about, both to understand what's going on in the American Christianity around us and the church around us, and then also what's going on biblically and where we want to put our hearts and minds in regard to that. Before we get into that chapter, let's begin with an invocation of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Last week when we touched on this chapter very briefly, Wolfmuller introduced us to this idea of the crisis mentality. And of course we see that going on in the church. We also see that going on in the world. Never let a good crisis go to waste. And in fact it's become... Uh, an almost universal axiom that if you want quick change, you need to put people in a state of panic and fear. And once they've bought into that, you can initiate the quick change. And unfortunately, the church has been engaged in this for quite some time here in America. And I lamented that and shared with you some of my own experiences about the pressures that are put from the top of our ecclesiastical organizations all the way down, almost like a pyramid scheme, to where the end result is that I'm supposed to be berating you all to be more about the mission and constantly uh, 
changing, because if you don't change, we're going to die, and constantly browbeating people into Christianity, because if we don't grow the church numerically, we're going to die, and other such <coughs> crisis and panic uh, mentality being exhibited. All right. What I do really appreciate about Wolf Mueller is he spends a lot of time leading us into the scriptures. If we look at the second full paragraph on 207, and I think that this is important, as much as I'm tempted to skip it over and thinking, you know all that, it's always good to review and relay the foundation, especially then as we get into the critical sections of this chapter where Wolf Mueller is rightly critical of the false teachings of our times. So that second paragraph, Wolf Mueller writes, The Lord's Church has always lived in the hope of Jesus' return. We live in the quote-unquote last days, which were inaugurated at his ascension. Jesus promised time and again that he will return to the earth in great glory to raise the dead and judge all people. His return marks the end of this age and the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth where righteousness lives. So that's the way in which the biblical authors speak of us being in the last days. There's simply nothing more to come. There's nothing left in this age than the return of Jesus, which is the end of the age. So what else would you call that but the last days? We're not we're not waiting for anything else at various points in time. And, for example, in the Old Testament, you can see different saints waiting for things, promises that God has made to be fulfilled on the way to that ultimate promise of the first coming of Christ, the incarnation and our salvation. But since he has come, there's really only one more event, and that's his final coming. And so we are in the last days, even if we're in the last days for 10,000 years they're still the last days because there's nothing more to come before the end. All right? Just continuing on where we left off in that paragraph, Wolf Miller writes, his, namely our Lord's, return will be sudden. A horror to all who live confident in their own goodness but joy and comfort for those who long for his appearing. And this is such a beautiful and profound truth, one of the most important truths, I think, of all theology, but it's a subtle one. And that is that Jesus is law and wrath and terror to all who exalt themselves, because he will humble them. But to all who humble themselves, he is pure joy and grace and mercy and health and wholeness and relief and rest and vindication because he will exalt those who humble themselves. And so it's the same Jesus. But the difference, every action has to do with the difference of the heart. And so, you know, even as a, I think even as a, as a Christian child growing up, I was sort of scared of the end times because, you know, it's, scary and uh, it's there there's great big movements and it's final and there's uh, other kinds of you know dramatic th- 
and bombastic sorts of things happening. But once you realize that, hey, that's what's necessary for our Lord to return, and who else would you rather see in the entire cosmos? And then with his return comes the fullness of your mercy and the instantiation of his kingdom and the righting of all wrongs and the resurrection of all the dead. Um, now you're saying, come Lord Jesus. And so I think that that kind of illustrates that you know, we can look at it with a sense of kind of superficial fear. You know, uh, the same way we're fearful of death. Uh, there's a su- kind of superficial fear just because of the magnitude of what it is. And what I mean by that is, right, on paper and here, while none of us appears to be imminently facing death, everyone's like, oh, I don't fear death. And then, you know, the second you're there, you're scrambling to try to stay alive and you're trying to, you know, fend off death with all your might and you're fighting in the hospital room and maybe you're nervous and anxious. But I would still call that for Christians. Uh, a kind of superficial fear because deeper than that you know that Christ has you and that he's the one who has authority over death. We experience the same kind of fear when we think of the end times or when we read these dramatic headlines of, of events that are happening. But I think what we need to recognize is we just need to say, you know, when we, we're overcome with that anxiety or that sense of fear, we need to say, well, that's natural that's superficial. It has to do with the gravity of the circumstances. It's normal to feel that way. You probably had some fear and trepidation at your confirmation. You probably had some fear and trepidation at your graduation. You probably had some fear and trepidation at your marriage. You probably had some fear and trepidation at other stages of your life. So why wouldn't you also at a momentous occasion like death or the end of the world? So We acknowledge that, we don't dismiss that, but we recognize that it's superficial. Deeper than that, and once all that sort of wears off, as it were, we recognize that our Lord Jesus is there, and we can approach him with full confidence, knowing that he's the very one who died for our sins. Who's going to judge you for your sins? The very one who died to take away your sins. Do, Do you think he doesn't know them? He bore each one of them Himself, He knows them better than you. He paid for them. They're put away. This is Christ who loves you more than anyone else in the whole world has loved you. He, he will even make your mother's love seem dim and cold. That's how much he loves. And that's how deeply he loves. And so we have everything to look forward to. And that's the great paradox then, really, between unbelievers who will experience nothing but terror and increasing terror, and saints who will experience nothing but joy and increasing joy at the thought of Christ's return. So he is a horror, as Wolf Mueller says, to all who live confident in their own goodness, but he is the joy and comfort of those who long for his appearing. And then just to round out that paragraph, the return of Jesus is the great hope and longing of his people. His coming is the culmination of our salvation. It is our redemption drawing near. And we spoke at some length about that, I think, last week. Wolf Miller continues, The preaching of Jesus' return is a preaching of law and gospel, both warning and comfort. First, the warning. This normally comes to us as the command to quote-unquote, be ready, and you can think of uh, many times where Jesus preaches those words. Now, quoting Matthew twenty-four forty-four. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
And then quoting Mark 13, 37, And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. And now quoting similarly in Luke 21, 36, But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Then Wolfmuller writes, the last day will be a surprise and the Christian is warned in order that we would not be caught in sin and debauchery, but rather doing the work the Lord has put before us. Now a lengthier quote from 2 Peter 3, but very worthwhile. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And of course, what does it mean to come like a thief? Unannounced. That's the point. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved... What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? So, a wonderful admonition to live, not only as if each day might be your last on earth, but as if each day might be the last day of earth. (laughs) And to be prepared, be ready, be awake for the Lord's return, perhaps even later this afternoon. And it is, a, it is a good way to live. It's one of the beautiful parts of making the sign of the cross every morning as the catechism instructs us uh, in remembrance of baptism. Um, but as you make the sign of the cross, you remember the death of our Lord Jesus. You remember our death. You remember your mortality and the only way by which we are saved. But part of that remembrance of your mortality, the remembrance of the judgment helps shape and form the way you live differently. Um, Because you see that, hey, this day might be my last, this day might be the last, and if I knew that for a fact, how would I choose to live? And why not go out bright as can be, uh, living that life that Christ has given us to live? Okay, but it 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 remains a secret for us. We don't know when he will return, and so thus Jesus says, hey, be ready, stay awake, anytime. And Wolfmuller comments at the end here, Jesus cannot lie. We know he will return. God has a pretty good track record of keeping his promises. <laughs> so he's at 100% so far, and he's got this one left. I think he'll make it. So we encourage one another to faith and love and good deeds. Now quoting Hebrews 10. 24 through 25, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pause there, just see if you have any thoughts. I'll sip a sip of coffee, and if not, we'll head into the next uh, section. Again, we're just laying a scriptural foundation here, which you never think is important until you realize it is, and then it's too late, and you go, oh, shoot, we should have started back here with the scriptural foundation. So we won't make that mistake. Other than you're ruining all the movies, and I like 
like the terror part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that darn Bible ruining the Left Behind movies and all the other apocalyptic yeah, the movies, movies. And also the terror part. That's a good mo- movie to make, you know, or people just screaming and hollering. Mm. I mean, you're, you're taking all that away. Yeah. <laughs> well, weeping and gnashing of teeth and people saying to the hills, cover us and hide us and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, but it's what we Christians acknowledge. I mean, this is why the, why the worship service every Sunday is no joke, because the same one who's going to judge us and return visibly is there. How do we respond? We confess our sins. We receive his absolution. We acknowledge that the same Lord Jesus we see every Sunday in the divine service is the same Lord Jesus we're going to see on the last day. It's one of my favorite ways to think about going to communion. Go to communion as if going to the last judgment. Your name's just been called. There you are, going before his throne. And what does he say? Go to communion as if going to your judgment, because when you go to your judgment, it'll be no different than going to communion. It's not like Jesus is going to be like, and who are you? <laughs> uh, you know, if he says that, you're already in big trouble. If he doesn't know you. Um, but, but, Seriously, it's the same Lord Jesus who's going to judge us, who's there every Sunday, who receives you and says, my body given, my blood shed for you. He knows his sheep, and his own sheep know him. And so there's no, in that sense, the judgment isn't any great surprise either. And in fact, as we align ourselves with him against our flesh, the judgment is great relief. I mean, it's great relief. It's like going to a doctor who can finally diagnose the thing that no other doctor has been able to diagnose. And then in the same breath that he diagnoses it, he heals it by absolving, forgiving, and healing then truly ourselves so that we never endure that again. So there's a double relief there in both knowing, like, how bad was I? (laughs) How messed up was this? What part did I play in that? I need some objective reality here. And um, then when you receive that, that's great, because in part it's vindication. In part, you weren't as wrong as you thought you were in some instances. Um, and And you might even receive commendation. That's a beautiful thing and an essential thing. But the flip side is where you were wrong, you were wrong. And again, there's just this this beautiful comfort in knowing the objectivity of where you're sick and where you're wrong, um, precisely because it comes from the one who is the healer and in that very moment absolves and heals for all eternity. So just a beautiful, beautiful thing we have to look forward to. I'm sorry, uh, please go ahead. You may have answered this question because it's such a simple one, but if you were to have a little list of objectives how we should live each day. Okay, we wake up in the morning, we've got a day. Mm-hmm. Other than saying, may I live in your will, may I persevere to the end. Yeah. And then when we get to the night to look back and see, well, did we meet those simple goals? I mean, we're up, you know, what's really simple that we can kind of grasp onto mm-hmm. that we should maybe accomplish every day or not spend time doing every oh, day? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, of course, the standard biblical answer is consider your place in life, that's your vocations, according to the Ten Commandments. So it just, it really doesn't get any more elementary than that. At the end of every day, we're going to have things to confess and things to be forgiven of. But that's what we set before ourselves. And then, you know, if opportunity arises, um, 
take that opportunity, seize that day, uh, live for Christ, be bold, be confident. But, you know, we also have this statement, these statements in Scripture that the goal of the Christian life is to live peaceful and quiet lives. So, uh, you know, that's the other thing is like, are you really doing something for Jesus? You've got to be making a lot of noise and a lot of ostensible impact and all of that. But there's great comfort that it's just, it's wonderful to pursue a, a quiet and uneventful life. In our vocations, living out our lives in this twofold way of trying to avoid sins, trying to do good, that's the first part. And then the second part is confessing our sins and receiving God's forgiveness. I've been studying 1 John with the men on Monday nights, and 1 John is like the manual of that. It's so beautiful. It's just over and over. Every, Every way that John points us is, hey, I write these things to you so that you don't sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the righteous one. So you know, you wake up in the morning, goal one is, I want to do right and not wrong. Goal two is, I want to confess and be forgiven. If we live that, we're walking in the light, um, according to John. Yeah. So I think it's that easy. I think it's that simple. Do right, stay in our vocations. Yeah. Spend too much time outside of our vocations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, there's, I, I, we get really introspective and scrupulous as Westerners, as modern Westerners who are already kind of self-absorbed. It's just some beautiful freeing statements in the scriptures that, you know, like it's okay to go on vacation. It's, o- it's okay to go to McDonald's and get a double quarter pound with cheese. It's a, you know, it's okay to just be a human being and to enjoy some things and to do some human stuff, you know, we don't have to be so hyper-trained on like, okay, was everything absolutely like godly and self-restricting and self-denying? I mean, okay, so that would be kind of the limit over and against scrupulosity. We don't want to let the flesh have its reign or passions have their reign. We don't want to overindulge and live undisciplined lives. We want to live lives that overarchingly um, exhibit self-denial and self-sacrifice. All these things are true, but you see what I'm trying to do? That can be taken too far one way or the other. So it's kind of striking that balance. And there's just this, you know, if you read the Old Testament narrative, you just don't see like Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or even like Moses or David stewing over this stuff all the time. So I think that that's really freeing for us that we can say, hey, I'm going to I'm going to make my way following the Lord and going to let the chips fall living in his grace and doing doing what I can, but living in his grace and not being afraid to enjoy some things along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Please not sure how to frame this question it's more about the wailing and gnashing of teeth scenario at the end my imagination likes to think that you know when jesus returns the baseline christians who haven't been going to church are gonna repent immediately probably and feel regret that they should have done more but they're still saved Mm -hmm. potentially i mean i'm not worried about how how many are saved and all that but the wailing and gnashing of teeth and being completely separated from God, is it because they can't believe or they've chosen not to believe? I'm, my imagination likes to think that when you see Jesus there, everybody's going to say, I, I believe you and forgive me. But I think there's going to be some people that just are going to be so angry that it's real and so uh, you know, possessed by evil that 
that's where the gnashing of teeth is that right to think about that kind of stuff or yeah yeah i think that that's right so i mean weeping general or obviously sorrow and then gnashing of teeth generally anger and you see those kinds of things exhibited and you can just imagine the whole range of human emotions as as to why one might feel those feelings uh, most acute and, and worst of all for reasons that are you can easily grasp are those who have known Christ very intimately and rejected him very personally uh, and rejected his gifts. That's knowing that he gave you, I, I mean, in that sense, like everything that he gave you suddenly flips and becomes the burden of what you rejected. Does that make sense? I may not be saying that the clearest way, but uh, that's the dynamic. So I think there is like this especially strenuous warning given, you can see this like in Hebrews 6, that's kind of what I'm thinking. There's this really strenuous warning to those of us who know Christ and have been brought into the church that the judgment becomes almost infinitely worse. It would have been better not to know him in the first place and have rejected him than to know him and reject him. Then, you know, maybe an analogy that would be to, you've gone all the way the marathon to the finish line and then you've turned around at the end. I mean, that's going to be worse than having never run the marathon in the first place, right? So that's the kind of warning and admonition that Christ especially warns Christians with. And rightfully so, because the devil already has unbelievers in his pocket, but it's Christians who he's most after and most trying to get. And so the Lord has the most, I think, stringent warnings directed toward us so that we not fall prey. Yeah, those, by the way, I, um, I recently ran across this. <laughs> it's, it's, incredible, it's incredible what a treasure trove we have in the history of the church and just how much we've lost. I mean... It's really remarkable, but this used to be um, so. In in the Lutheran tradition of meditation, there were three uh, loci that kind of rose to the top, where uh, you find a lot of attention spent by certain of our Lutheran Church fathers, and they would be um, meditations on the cross. That's going to surprise just about no one. Okay, um, meditations on eternal life. Uh, we recently did a study on one of those from John Gerhard, um, but that, that was very frequent. And then the flip side, meditations on eternal damnation and punishment for or the right and just punishment for sins. Now, I had not heard that before. It was really eye-opening to me. And it's something I've, I've personally experienced of being of great value and benefit. Um, in fact, I think if you read something like Dante's Inferno, and you stop like asking, like, is this true in the literal, superficial sense? And ask yourself if it's true in the deeper sense that there is, in fact, that even if he doesn't have the details right, let's say, that there is, in fact, uh, right and just retribution. Uh, a book like that can be extremely profitable because it awakens in you this, the reality. It wakes you up from this snooze where you don't think it's a reality and takes you into this deeper truth of, wait a minute, there, there is a hell. There are people there right now. They are experiencing retribution for their sins. Don't go there. <laughs> and so um, that was a third uh, of these meditations um, that rose to the top. And I think... Um, 
yeah, I think I'm Lutheran in this way also, that that's an extremely profitable way to meditate and think. And um, as with all of these, well, as with, I would say, eternal life and eternal damnation, eternal death, it's not so much like, are you right in the particulars and the details? It's like, are you right in the deeper sense of the truth and the reality? That's maybe more what gets you there, right? Yeah. Okay, we have another hand, no problem. One second. Mm-hmm. don't know the address of the scriptures, but I know it's in the scriptures. It says, if the Lord doesn't come quickly, many will be deceived. Mm, yeah. And I'm just wondering if that's going to be, is there actually going to be people who are really going to be deceived, and then that would prevent them from being included mm-hmm. in the... I think so. I think the terrifying thing, um, and I'm not trying to be sensationalistic. I don't think that our time is necessarily different than other periods of time. Okay, so let me start with that caveat. But if you look objectively at the church today, which is the light of the world, the rest of the world is in darkness. If you look objectively at the church today, How much do you find the gospel rightly preached, the sacraments rightly administered, right theology and worship put forward? I mean, even if we stretch those bounds pretty broad, it is a narrow swath. I mean, I don't mean to depress anyone or put you in some kind of existential crisis, um, but but it is objectively really bad, (laughs) really dark. And you just... I, I can very much sympathize with that sentiment that, you know, if possible, even the elect might be deceived. That kind of line from Jesus, this kind of warning that if God did not return when he did, everyone would fall into this kind of delusion. Why? Because you just look around and you go, Lord, to whom shall I go? Where's the pure church? Where's the pure denomination? Where's the, you know, and obviously, as we look at individual pastors, it's like, yeah, they've got sins or they've got quirks in their teaching. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about guys, like, quirks aside, little little errors aside. I'm talking about, like, major false teaching contrary to the central articles of the faith. Like, just try to find a guy who's free from that, and, like, it's bleak. That, that's a small slice of the pie. So I think that that's the kind of sentiment that our Lord's expressing, and I think we can see that um, even today, uh, and certainly at other times in history. I mean, probably even for the whole history of the church, you can get that sense if you look at it. So hopefully that kind of answers yes. your yes, question. Thank you. All right. Was there anything else? Are we ready to go on a little further? Um, I, Please. I could just ask this question. Uh, I think in the context of living until the expected return, one of the challenges, I think, for a Christian and for me is that uh, when someone wrongs me, I tend to want to be judge, uh, jury, and executioner. And what would you suggest uh, in our daily life uh, as uh, Seeking reconciliation, forgive, seeking forgiveness, but when that doesn't happen, uh, how how can we live faithful lives? There? Well, there's many things that we have to commend into God's hands and into His keeping, and um, when when let's say two Christians have some sort of 
intractable set of circumstances. And uh, how, how do you think about that? And you think, uh, you know, let's, let's say that um, you're in the right in this and someone else, uh, that your brother Christian is in the wrong and you've done what you can to be reconciled to them. You've done what you can to change that. Maybe even some of the Matthew 18 stuff has failed you. Um, maybe there are. Maybe the church has failed you. There is no discipline, or no one willing to stand beside you for the cause of righteousness in this issue. I think. I think one of the key aspects of forgiveness is commending it into the hands of God. You simply say, "I'm relinquishing my personal claim. I'm simply commending it into your hands." Judge, and you get this language in the scriptures, judge between us, O God. Okay? That's not a self-righteous statement. That's a statement limited to the issue at hand that you're calling upon God to execute judgment. And it, in that sense, even, I mean, when you have a really clean conscience about the whole thing, you can say, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Correct me. But if they're wrong, correct them. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that, but that can give you a little bit of spiritual, psychological breathing room when you just say, hey, I'm not going to condemn, as in wish this person to go to hell, obviously. Um, Who am I to judge another man's servant, especially when I am that same man's servant? It's not my role to judge a fellow servant, uh, but I do have this complaint, and I put it into your hands, dear Father do with that as you will. Um, and then you can pray all the other prayers that kind of flow from that for their repentance, for their well-being, etc., etc. But that would be maybe a kind of one helpful way to think about it. All right. As soon as I said all right, I lost my page. Bear with me. So, thank you. Uh, so back into Wolf Mueller's text and um, Looks like, uh, let's take a look at the bottom of 208, just get this Matthew 24 quote. Um, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, a section especially apropos for the pastoral ministry, but uh, maybe has some broader application to Christian lives. I think the key point being uh, this, this theme of doing your master's will so that when he comes, he will commend you, as opposed to thinking my master's never going to come and I'm just going to slip into doing my own will or living like everyone else lives, and then you end up with everyone else in the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth.
I'll write what does Wolfmuller have to say about this. He says, Jesus intends for us to be warned and ready for his second coming because he loves us and desires our salvation. This is the good news of the last day. Right, and it's where this, if you're a Christian, all of these warnings, while they are law in the proper sense, they're law given in the service of salvation. So you get that kind of thing where why is he telling you this? Precisely because he loves you and wants you to be saved. This is the good news of the last day, Wolfmuller writes. When Jesus returns, it is to rescue and deliver us, not to punish and destroy us. Especially as we labor under the toil and tears and troubles of this life, the temptations, the weakness, the darkness of death, and the pain of our sins, we look to the last day with hopeful expectation, quote, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, end quote, Titus 2.13. The return of Jesus as our blessed hope because our sins are forgiven, is our blessed hope because our sins are forgiven. Apart from the grace of God, the last day is a day of terror and wrath, but not for Christians. The day of judgment does not frighten us because Christ has died. Jesus took our condemnation in his death on the cross. There is no judgment or condemnation for the Lord's Christians. His return, then, is our salvation. Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 9.28 This is why Jesus tells us not to run for the hills or hide in fear, but to lift up our heads. The one who died for us is the one returning for us. The one who suffered for our sins is the one coming to deliver us. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near, says Jesus in Luke 21, 28. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus made a place for us in his kingdom. He will return to take us to that place, the eternal home of blessedness. Let not your hearts be troubled, John 14, 1 through 2. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Our hope is not simply to be in heaven or even to make it to the resurrection. Our great hope is to be with Jesus, to dwell where he dwells, and this is exactly what he promises us. All right. So, the teaching of, a, of the last things is called eschatology from the Greek eschaton, or last things. We will consider in this chapter the end of all things, the return of Jesus in glory, and the different teachings in the church about this great last day. So, with that, we've laid the biblical foundation, or at least Wolf Mueller has for us, Let's take another glimpse at what's going wrong in American Christianity. Toward the top of 2.10, the simplicity of this doctrine has been changed, expanded, and exalted in American Christianity. I mean, note the simplicity of this doctrine. We're waiting for Jesus to return. Be awake, be ready, he's coming. And it's going to be glorious and wonderful and comforting when he does come. That's it. That's eschatology. (laughs) All done. Uh, But yeah, it has been, needlessly said, needless to say, changed, expanded, 
and exalted in American Christianity. Congregations who are typically wary of creeds, danger, danger, (laughs) wary of creeds and precise theological articulation, make their particular eschatological system a matter of church fellowship. Isn't that ironic? Deeply ironic. Wolf Mueller lived this himself. Uh, Yeah, yeah, no creeds. Deeds, not creeds. And then when it comes to eschatology and the, these complete minutiae, which aren't biblical whatsoever, hey, that's, you're either in or out of, on that point. American Christianity has its own dictionary, Wolf Mueller writes, of theological buzzwords dealing with its unique eschatology. Rapture. Dispensationalism. Pre-trib, which of course is short for pre-tribulation. Or post-trib or mid-trib, great tribulation, the thousand-year reign, and such are the code words, boy, we haven't even got into some of them, are the code words for the eschatologically orthodox. American Christianity might not be clear in its teaching that Jesus is both God and man, but it is very clear in confessing he had too much fun writing this paragraph. But it is very clear in confessing that the rapture will be before the tribulation. <laughs> I never mind the fundamental truths of Christianity. Let's get on with the nonsense. American Christianity has a very peculiar and strange teaching concerning the end times. It's a great irony that the nuttiest teaching of American Christianity's theology is the rally point upon which its pastors become most insistent on theological agreement. Irony indeed. I know something of this. I was taught to expect the secret rapture of the church and the thousand-year reign of Jesus. Uh, it says on the church. I wonder if he means in the church. I was taught that the recon, uh, reconstitution of Israel as a nation in 1948 was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy as was the establishment of the United Nations. Right. When I learned that the Lutherans didn't preach, or didn't teach, excuse me, the pre-tribulation rapture, I'll explain the vocabulary in the coming sections, I almost gave up on them. When I learned that the Lutherans had a different understanding of the thousand-year reign of Christ, I was so distressed that I almost never went back. I hope in this chapter to unfold a biblical eschatology and dispel a number of the non-biblical teachings that have made their way into American Christianity. In the end, the scriptural truths deliver comfort and hope in the Lord's promised return. Now we're going to quote from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake 
or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. All right. Um, We've listed a few of the problems here that uh, Wolf Mueller points out, especially this odd vocabulary and very specific teaching and this ironic dogmatism about this stuff. Even while all other dogmatisms are rejected. You know, and I would say this too, just by way of caveat. In in one sense, all the end time stuff doesn't matter because uh, what will be will be, right? <laughs> I mean, it's coming no matter who's wrong or who's right. It's coming. And whether you knew it or didn't know it is really of little effect. It's coming. Keep your eyes on Jesus, okay? Um, but in a second sense, I think maybe the most damaging part of this is instead of preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus to all nations, the church is now teaching ever more specific and narrow theories about the end times. To where you flip on a certain popular radio station around here and you're more likely than not to get a uh, sermon on the end times, not on repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that maybe is the biggest problem, is that the church of Jesus Christ has Jesus Christ eclipsed by end times mania and end times theory. That's maybe maybe the most obvious and most global danger of all of these shenanigans. Obviously, there's other things that can go awry when people have false teaching in mind. But from my vantage point, I would wager that that's probably the biggest. Okay, so we'll go into the thousand years pre, post, and amillennialism. Uh, unless there are any questions or comments that need to be made, I'll give you opportunity for that. If you do have something that comes into your mind, don't hesitate to raise a hand. All right. Wolf Miller tells us there are about five different eschatological schools of thought. These grow chiefly out of different understandings of a singular passage in the book of Revelation, which already, if you know anything about classic Christianity, is a problem because of this distinction. Uh, in the churches, you have homologomena and antilegomena. Homologomena are the books of the scriptures that everyone throughout all Christian history has acknowledged these are in, these do in fact have apostolic authority. These are in fact scriptures were guaranteed, um, but there are certain texts in in the con, uh, included in the New Testament canon where certain churches have been have said um, we're not certain that this has apostolic authority. We're not certain of its origins. We're not certain of its teachings. These are the anti-legomena. Legomena means spoken. So homologomena is everyone speaking together in favor. Anti-legomena is some speaking against. And what that does is creates a little uh, collection of books in the canon where if there's a teaching in one of those books, you can't base a doctrine that's binding on all Christendom. Okay, And Revelation is one of those anti-legomena Books. So it is ironic that you have this all important, in air quotes, this all important doctrine that really comes out of one passage in the book of Revelation, which doesn't have the homologonomous standing in the first place. 
but is anti-legomenous. You can't base an entire doctrine off this one point. Secondarily, could you pick a book that is more notoriously difficult to interpret, and you're going to base the ultimate doctrine in your church body, because all you do is talk about eschatology, you're going to base that on this, on this anti-legomena book that is already among those the most difficult to translate and the most obscure when it comes to understanding. Do you see the faulty foundation we're already, we've already laid? All right, so there's a lot of irony here. And of course, I mean, the other thing that I hope to bring out is all of this nonsense really started in the 19th century. When we get to dispensationalism, it's a lot clearer. But um, all, what, it, what passes for modern eschatology, like if you just go to the, whatever your big box church is that's, that's near you, non-denominational community church, whatever it's called, and you go there and listen to their eschatology, all you're getting is 19th century stuff. That's where it comes from. Um, Premillennial dispensationalism, dispensationalism in particular, comes from uh, Darby in the 19th century and the Schofield Reference Bible also of the 19th century. Um, postmillennialism, we'll talk about that in a minute, um, also comes from the 19th century. So you've really got premillennialism and amillennialism as the ancient ones. And amillennialism is the one that carries the day for the history of the church, even though you can find scattered fathers here and there, you can find scattered Jewish belief that there's going to be a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Um, the vast majority of the church and, and the teaching that you know, is anything older than the 19th century is amillennialism. So just even from that standpoint, it's really quite... Uh, it's really quite telling if you have a grasp on history that, hey, wait a minute, for, for 1850 or 1830 years, the church didn't believe this stuff, and now it's so important that it's all the church is talking about. Warning, warning. Okay, back to Wolf Mueller. Uh, Revelation 21 through 10 tells of a 1,000-year time in which the devil will be bound and the saints will reign with Christ. This 1,000 years is called the millennium from the Latin mille, or thousand, and annus, year. How you understand the millennium relative to today and the second coming determines which school of thought you fall into. Premillennialism teaches that Jesus will return to establish his kingdom on earth. So remember that part where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world? Yeah, he kind of didn't mean that, because eventually it is going to be of this world. That's premillennialism. Uh, postmillennialism teaches you that Jesus will return after, thus post, after a 1,000-year golden age which is yet to come. You can see why this was so popular in the 19th century because we're at the height of modernity. Everything is getting better and better. Um, upward mobility, riches, um, industrial revolution is just running right along. Technology is getting better and better. Lifespans are getting more and more. Hey, if we keep at this, we're going to have utopia and then the Lord's going to return. We will build utopia, then he will come. That's post-millennialism. And uh, what happened at the beginning of the 20th century that kind of, I don't know, put a little cold water on that? Maybe World War? 
And how many? Not just one, but two, and then an entire century of global conflict. Guess that didn't work out. So, needless to say, post-millennialism, which was super popular, yeah, we crash and burn. It's very hard to find any post-millennialist uh, post today. So, yeah, premillennialism, the idea that he returns, he establishes his kingdom on earth. I mean, literally, that he's going to have an office in Jerusalem, that you could schedule a time to go visit and see the Lord, if you're, apparently, if you're like wealthy or important enough. And uh, every, everything's going to be prosperous. I, I don't know what he's going to use, if he'll use conventional technology to keep the nukes away, or if, he's, uh, if he'll use supernatural technology in this vision. I don't know, but apparently he's got his kingdom on earth, and no other kingdoms threaten him for a thousand years. Which, I mean, if that was true and you're an unbeliever, you'd be like, ha. Huh. So there's this Jew named Jesus who lives in Jerusalem. He seems not to have died for a few centuries. Isn't that odd? Yeah. Hold on one second. Let's get you a microphone. Yeah. Okay. The post-millennium has the thousand-year reign, but the pre-millennium, they still have a thousand years, but they're saying to establish this kingdom. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. If How can you be a post-millennium and say it comes after? Because then you can't be, you can't do the, the one before. Right. These are mutually exclusive views. So premillennialism is the idea that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, but, and Christ visibly returns before that thousand years. That's premillennial. So he, premillennialism. So he comes before the thousand years. That was the one I was just describing, where he's like, you know, got headquarters in Jerusalem, and, um, you know, he's, he's uh, protecting Israel, the nation-state of Israel, from all other threats, political, global threats around the world. And that also, it's strange because, you know, as the centuries roll on and he's still physically reigning there, none of the rest of the world wakes up and goes, huh, maybe this is really the Messiah. We should all believe in him and stop shooting nukes at him. Um, so it's just this, what I'm doing is a reductio ad absurdum that if you actually think this through, it's patently ridiculous and doesn't fit any of the biblical data. All right, post-millennialism is this idea that we evolve. You can see why this becomes popular after Darwinianism um, comes to full vogue. It's this idea that the human race will evolve into this golden period of a thousand years where Christ is said to be reigning, but he visibly comes at the end. I mean, picture it's like utopia is just, you know, everything's becoming the Disney. The whole world's just getting refreshed, and we're making it better and better and better. And then finally Christ descends from heaven to receive the throne that we've, you know, it's like the last cherry has to go on the last cake, and everything's perfect, and then down he comes. Uh, So that's post-millennialism, and of course the world wars ruin that. So premillennialism, postmillennialism, two ex- mutually exclusive views, and both of them, I mean, just easily refutable by common sense, if not by the scriptures. And the fact that, I mean, the way that these things are viewed is really popularized in the 19th century and 20th century. Yeah, how would you know when the, when the thousand years starts? Because it says here, after the thousand, so you, you need to know when it starts first. 
Yeah, you're gonna see you're gonna see telltale signs of this kind of. I mean, I don't want to speak for post millennials, and there's different takes on all of this. So it's always dangerous to say, "Hey, this is the way they think," because there is no collective they. There's all kinds of different theories, but they would generally be understood that um, everything in the world gets better and better, and then Christ comes and reigns. That that's my maybe the most broad but accurate way of thinking about it. I mean, if you don't like it, I'm not trying to convince you. I don't no, like it either. I'm I don't think trying, it makes any I'm sense. I'm trying to find the date for the... When does the thousand years actually start? Because they're both... They're both saying... They're both looking at a thousand years. Yeah, so. you don't find it. Or, or perhaps in this one particular guy or that one particular guy, there's supposedly some kickoff event that they've identified in the scriptures. But... Generally speaking, right, you just, it's, it's after this thousand year golden age, which everybody just kind of recognizes, huh, you know, 2019, 20, and 21 really kind of stunk. And then there was that day in August in 2022 where everything started turning around. Anybody else notice that? Yeah, the stock market went up and there was world peace and hunger was coming to an end. And, and so in retrospect, we'll look back and say, hey, that, that's when it began, and it's been going on for 100 years now. I guess if this keeps up, this is the 1,000 years. We can expect Christ to return uh, yeah, any century now. So, Okay. All right, and um, th- let me give you the last one, and then we'll break, and then next week we'll just jump into these, refresh our memories, and then go with Wolf Mueller into uh, a biblical diagnosis of what this 1,000 years is, even though I hope I've already shown the really weak foundation upon which the entire conversation already stands. Amillennialism, or realized millennialism, although I'm not sure I've ever heard it called that, teaches that the 1,000 years is a description of the time between Jesus' ascension and return. All right, spoiler alert, he's crowned on the cross. He says, all, after he raise, rises from the dead, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, I don't know about you, that kind of sounds like reigning talk. And then he ascends into heaven, and what happens as soon as he gets into heaven? He's enthroned and coronated in heaven. I, I don't know, it sounds to me like he might be reigning. All right, so if he's reigning from the time of his ascension, is that when it's listed? Yeah, from Jesus' ascension. If he's reigning from the time of his ascension, then he's reigning up until the very present and what then does that reign look like? And how can we think of that reign in a biblical way? Those are the things we'll examine as we get into the biblical texts that teach this next week. So, amillennialism is the way. The Lord be with you. <laughs>